the master philosopher and theologian. His name is C.S. Lewis. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. He once said this. He said, Enemy occupied territory. That is what this world is. And Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, landed in disguise, and is calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Now at the heart of it, what I think C.S. Lewis is saying here is that the space that we inhabit here on earth as humans is ruled by principalities and powers and kingdoms and kings. And even at times the scriptures would talk about the Satan being the ruler of the space that we inhabit. And yet, God has always been on a mission to redeem us and to redeem the space. From the very beginning of the garden narrative, which we look to, when things seem to kind of spiral out of control and get chaotic, God is on a plan. And from the very beginning, he had a Messiah in mind that would come and he would redeem the world. And he would take back this space. This is what Christmas is all about. It's about the beginning of God coming in human flesh to us to redeem all of humanity, to give of himself, to put skin in the game, to not just leave us at a distance and hope for something better, but actually in self-sacrificial love to give of himself on our behalf. This is what Christmas is about. Now here's the thing. There are dangers around this whole Christmas thing at times because we can do one of two things. And I want to be cautious a little bit because I know this word can maybe, I don't know, trigger or kind of, you know, be overused in our moment. But oftentimes there's kind of two postures in which we can take. One is to simply secularize Christmas. You know, we have everything going on around us, but we completely remove Jesus. And just the other day I was at a birthday party. It was actually one of my kids' birthdays. And it was fascinating. They're at a bounce, like they're in this bounce zone, bouncing around, and we are eating way too much pizza and drinking way too much pop and eating cake. And all throughout our experience, there's Christmas music playing in the background. This is fascinating to me that the whole evening was filled with Jesus songs and Jesus story all behind us. But it's really easy in our moment to kind of have that going on in the background and yet to kind of secularize this story, to kind of remove Jesus out of it. There were songs of Jesus all around us, and yet for, if you just kind of looked around, it was pretty apparent that nobody really cared. The other tension is we can sentimentalize Christmas, right? So we sing about the weather, <laughs> no judgment, but it's just true. We talk about the holidays, we watch Hallmark movies, right? There's no judgment there, you know, just come to Jesus. Other than that, just come to Jesus, but no judgment, no, obviously no judgment. But it's easy at times to sentimentalize Christmas to the point, again, where we completely miss the point. And so as I'm sitting at this birthday party uh, a week or so ago, I just get thinking about how both ends kind of, I don't know, would you say kind of neuter the story? Take the power and the life out of the great story that we lean into as Christians? You know, the better option is to really look at the scriptures and to look at the history of this story and understand that Jesus came to establish his kingdom on earth and to come into human history and to change the world. You know, in all our, and I can do this, in getting, in getting sentimental, I don't want to miss, and I hope you don't either, want to miss 
the great story of what's happening. Now, what's fascinating, um, and maybe you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you're not, and you're welcome. It's so great to have you wherever you kind of land on that spectrum. But I think about the story and the way in which the New Testament writers actually open about, about the story of Jesus and the way they open the Gospels up in telling the story that we often read at Christmas. It's so easy at times just to kind of read it over. I'm a Sunday school kid. I grew up in the church. I've been to ch- plenty of church services. I've been to many, uh, many upon many Christmas gatherings, and I've heard this story read aloud. Every year I read through these, and it's kind of easy just to kind of read them and kind of let them go by. But man, when you actually look at it, what the authors are doing as they open up the Gospels is so subversive. It's, and, and I kind of joke with our community sometimes, it's so punk rock. This story is telling something that is not only profound, but it's provocative. And ultimately, this is what the gospel writers want us to see. This is not just some, again, sentimental thing. This is like God coming into real life, into real stories, into real cultures and people and places at this time in human history. And here's the thing. In all of our attempts to kind of make Christmas glitzy and glammy, and there's nothing wrong with that, this story came into a chaotic time. It was a mess. And one of the things we actually see is that the gospel writers open up by talking about the different kind of kingdoms at play that were already happening within this world. Uh, Read with me, Matthew chapter 2. This is what Matthew, how he kind of opens up his gospel. He says this, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when, again, here we hear this name again, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them when the Christ was to be born. And so here we see that Matthew, who was actually writing to a very Jewish community, was talking over and over about this guy named King Herod, or Herod the king that we read here. Now what's so funny about this is actually when you read it, what Matthew is doing is he's actually poking fun when he uses that term, Herod the king. If you know the life and story of King Herod, he was really a self-proclaimed and self-grasper of being the king of the Jews. Uh, If you know the story of King Herod, just a little bit of background on him, he, he was basically obsessed with himself and power. The story goes that he made a deal with Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman Empire, in the Senate to be given title king of the Jews. Eventually, he was appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate. But if you talk to any Jew on the street, he was not a legitimate king, and and certainly not a king that the Jewish people would recognize. First of all, because he was half Ebonite and wasn't a pure Jew. But the other side is, is the people in that day did not respect him. He was grasping for power and control. Have we heard of this before? A little bit, maybe? Actually, the story goes, and listen, I have four kids and I love them and a wonderful wife. Uh, King Herod had 42 freaking children and was married to several women over kind of his reign. One of the stories about him is, is that his favorite wife had a plan to remove him from power and actually put one of her sons in power 
So Herod heard about this and he murdered her. Like, Merry Christmas, welcome, thanks for turning on and, and joining us, right? Like, this is, this is who we're dealing with. I grew up in the era of Jerry Springer, so I can just hear it in the back, like, Jerry, Jerry, are you with me? And some of you kids of the 90s, maybe. My dad's name was Gary when I was growing up, so anytime things got tense in our home, we would always chant, Gary, Gary, right? Not only that, he drowned, Herod did, one of his sons in their family swimming pool in Jericho because it was rumored that this particular son was seeking power, right? Jerry, Jerry. And ultimately, even though he kind of was given some of these titles, this title by Caesar Augustus, he was actually concerned that Caesar Augustus and Cleopatra would actually come from Egypt to take over. So he made giant, massive, if you've been to uh, Jerusalem or you've been to Israel uh, in the Middle East, um, you know that part of his story was these giant palaces in the middle of nowhere throughout the land that he would often retreat to one by one to ensure his reign. He would literally travel between these massive palaces all around. This is the guy that Matthew, the writer of the gospel, who opens up the Jesus story, is kind of mockingly saying, this is Herod, kind of the king of the Jews. This is King Herod. Power, control, all sorts of stuff. So you have that piece and that kingdom, some puppet king named Herod at play. But then, if you know the story as well, we always hear at Christmas time the story of this guy named Caesar Augustus. Uh, Luke, so you have, we just read Matthew, Luke chapter 2, this is how Luke opens up his gospel. Luke chapter 2 says this, he opens up the Jesus story by saying, In those days, a decree went out from none other than Caesar Augustus, that all the world would be re- registered. This was the first registration where Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, remember that as well, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So here we hear not only in Matthew's gospel, who was writing to a Jewish audience about this faux kind of puppet king named Herod, but we hear about Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who was always ruling with power. He would actually, to kind of keep this type of control, he would often call towns or villages within the empire Caesarea for control. And if you read the Bible, you hear this. There's these little towns that he would attach his name to. And while he did this, at the same time, he would obviously hope and and, and really demand that these towns would submit to the great governing empire in which he ruled. And so, brothers and sisters, the Romans believed that they were this great eternal empire. They actually believed that five empires had ruled the world and that one of them would rule eternally, and that would be the empire of Rome. So you had the Assyrians and the Medes in history, the Persians, the Macedonians, and then you get through Alexander the Great towards the Caesars and the Roman Empire. Now you're like, what does this all have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with a lot, because this is what Jesus comes into. It's actually noted that the Roman prophets pointed to Caesar Augustus as, here's his title, the Son of God. You're like, wait a a second, isn't the Jesus story all about Jesus? Most Christians believe that Jesus has come as the Son of God, and yet what we often don't understand 
is that the Roman Empire and its empirical worship already worshipped the Son of God and his name was Augustus. If you know the story a little bit, Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And no, I'm not talking about the drink, even though it's a pretty good, pretty good place, right? Not, uh, was the nephew of Julius Caesar. And if you know the story of Julius Caesar, the Roman Senate deified him. And so Julius Caesar actually adopted his great nephew and really took him on almost as a son and heir of the kingdom who was Augustus. And so because Julius Caesar was deified, this guy named Caesar Augustus was literally seen in that time and place and space as the son of God. Think about that. Think about what the gospel writers are trying to do. Not only that, the Romans believed that they were a part of the eternal kingdom. They believed that the Roman Empire would last forever and that its ultimate kind of goal was the Pax Romana, the famous Pax Romana, or Roman peace. And if you know your history, and obviously here we are a couple thousand years later, that empire fell. And ultimately, even its way in which it tried to bring peace to the, king, uh, to the kingdom and to the empire and to the people around it is it would use the sword. It would use force to bring peace. Again, what does this have to do with Chris? I've turned this thing on and here we are just like, is this just a big history lesson? I promise it's more than that. What I want us to see is the tension that God comes as a baby and Jesus was born in the middle of a massive national conflict. And that conflict was really around who was going to rule the world. You have the puppet King Herod, you have Augustus using force in the empire, using military might and economic control, political reality Augustus was, ideological means, ideas, right, about the way in which the world should work and power and oppression and all of that. You know, the empire had resources and might and power. And not only that, they had the Roman story of conquering. And Herod also used these means in his own kind of leadership, his kind of puppet leadership to control people. If you know the story, these kingdoms would tax the, the average city, citizen. And there was all sorts of uh, kind of pieces at play in this entire story. And then you have this small subversive community, this Jewish community, that ultimately believed a Messiah would come and would lead the eternal kingdom. Listen to Daniel. This is what he says years and years earlier. He says this. He had a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and it was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. And so Jesus comes in and all I want us to see today as we celebrate Christmas and Jesus coming is that there was the tension of who was going to rule this eternal kingdom. You have the Romans who use force, you had Herod who was a fake, and then you, you see this baby come in, Jesus of Nazareth who came to bring peace and came to bring justice. Like sometimes I don't think we realize, do you understand in all of our attempts this week 
to make Christmas feel and look amazing and to get the right gift and do the right things. And I don't know about you, like over a month ago, putting up the lights. And again, none of that is wrong, but there's just so much we do to make this story and this season feel really good. And then you get to the Jesus story. Amongst the powers of the kingdom at play, you have peasants like Mary, Joseph from the backwoods in Galilee. You have nobodies. You have shepherds, right? Shepherds in that day were the lowest of the lowest in society. And this is who is actually bringing the good news of Jesus, the Messiah that has come. And then you even hear it in the text. You have this little, oh, little town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem. I mean, if I was to write this story and I was to tell this story, and you think about a king coming that would rule forever, you would think of Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem is the hot spot. It's where the temple is. It's where people are. It's where the high priest is. It's where the Holy of Holies is, where God's presence is in that time and place and space. I mean, that's where I would have come. And to be honest, just like Ricky Bobby, anybody, I don't know if you're Talladega Knight fans, but like I would probably send, if it was going to be a baby, a baby in golden fleece diapers. Are you with me? Like this is how I would have done it. And yet God comes through peasants and nobodies to the shepherds, and he's born in Bethlehem. What's fascinating is if actually if you even travel to Bethlehem today, and maybe some of you have gone to the Holy Land and done this trip, a wall has been built because of the conflict in that area between Palestinians and Israel. And through this wall, if you know, there's checkpoints to get into the city of Bethlehem. And that wall is there um, as, as a checkpoint for people to get, it, get into that place. And we see that not only do we see this current clash of cultures 2,000 years ago and all that's going on with emperors and the empire, but we see a clash of cultures and we see it today. National Geographic, just a, a bunch of years ago, they did a little article on the city of Bethlehem and it said, they said this, Bethlehem may be where Christianity began, but today its Christian residents are in a precarious spot. Israelis see them as Palestinian and Muslims see them as Christians. They see themselves alternatively as life-saving buffers or double-sided punching bags. The article goes on and says, Bernard Sabella, a Christian sociologist and member of the Palestinian parliament says, the Christian community may be all that's keeping the whole area from a blood-soaked implosion. Their mere presence of, the mere presence of Christians seems to reduce the scale of violence in the city. Israeli soldiers tread with caution around one of Christians' holiest sites. This is Bethlehem. And so, just as much as Jesus 2,000 years ago comes into the mess of humanity and broken leadership and injustice, so he comes into that mess today. If, if, if you, we don't understand, like maybe you think, like, why talk about this stuff on Christmas Eve? Like, aren't we supposed to be happy? Oh, I am very, very happy. I think this story changes the course of human history and alters our, our, maybe even our own perceived reality right now. I believe it changes everything. But I also think we need to talk about it with honesty and talk about the reality that Jesus came in very broken cultures and places and spaces. And here we are a couple thousand years later 
and Jesus still comes into the chaos of our day. Like, let's be honest, the last couple of years have been nuts, and yet Jesus comes in, and just like he did 2,000 years ago in inviting those who hear this story to follow him, that same invitation is out for us today. In and amongst debates about a global pandemic and racial injustice like we've seen the last number of years and all sorts of divisions and ideologies and maybe you're thinking about even today or tomorrow you know the weird uncle who of course is going to bring up some form of COVID, COVID and some form of debate at the at the Christmas dinner table and I heard somebody say this week that they're putting a 10 minute limit on how that's how long you can talk about COVID they're literally going to put a clock on the table they're going to hit it down kind of a timer down and then you're done talking about it but you know we've seen a lot there's a lot going on in our world and all that's going on around us. And I think one of the things Christmas reminds us is that Jesus came a couple thousand years ago, invited the world to follow him. And that hasn't changed. The invitation is still out. In the chaos of the first Christmas, now a couple thousand years later, that same invitation is out for you and me today. And here, this is why I bought in on this story. One of the reasons I'm a follower of Jesus, honestly, is because as I, we talk about this, and you, may be, you may be thinking, why would you talk about like Caesar and Herod and Bethlehem and checkpoints and injustice and all sorts of stuff on Christmas Eve? It's because when I read this story, it becomes very real. It's not trying to paint a picture that isn't true. It's telling a very real story of a very real world that God has come to renew. And that begins, brothers and sisters, with Jesus, the King who came and the promise is he will come again. And so amongst all that we think about Christmas, I'm bought in on this story because God came to very unusual broken places. And I believe he still does that today. And listen, I believe he is inviting you into this life of following him. So what happened on that night, thousands of years ago, I believe still remains true for us. The king has come. Brothers and sisters, he's come into a very interesting time, but I think of our moment right now. He is coming again. So the call today is just to trust him with your life. That's what we want to do as a church community and invite you into. Follow Jesus. The invitation is out.